Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Welcome back to Sprogcast. This is episode 19. I'm Karen Hall and he's Mark Harris. Yes, I am. Hi, Karen. Hi. Today, Karen, we're talking about motherhood in the media. Inspired by an article we saw a little while ago by Dr. Ranjana Daz. Uh, who is a, a fellow Leicester City dweller, uh, who will hopefully be chatting with you later, Karen. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I have already done one excellent interview with her, but you won't be hearing that because it didn't record. So <laughs> we'll be having another go at that. There is something tragically bitter about that experience, in, in my experience. Do you know what I mean? I remember writing yeah. half a chapter of my book and losing it. And it's gone then, isn't it? It's in the ether. Oh. You can never get it back. Oh. Cannot recapture the magic of that moment, but we're going to have a try and we'll, oh, I, we'll slot re- that in later. I, I remember feeling an existential sense of oblivion when it happened. Yes, that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> there you go. Sprogcast <laughs> is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. And you can find us on facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Yeah, yes, you can. And uh, we're hoping to announce in the not too distant future, although we're giving you a hint, that Birthrights, um, the organisation that supports the rights of women in the context of uh, birth, is going to be the charity and the organisation that we officially support. So that's at birthrights.org.uk. Keep tuned for that because that's going to develop over time. Yeah. Have you read the book Human Rights and Childbirth yet, Mark? I have flicked through. I've read bits. Obviously, know Rebecca quite well. Uh, if you ask me, and I was talking to Dennis Walsh the other day, the book's worth it just for the appendices, mm. to be frank. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, and um, the uh, – what's her name? Uh, Kathy Warwick is saying every midwife should read it. Yeah, would agree. Uh, everyone involved with birth in any way should read it. Um, so, yeah, I am going to read it. it it's, it's on a pile. It's a really good book, definitely. Well, tell me, what, what's good about it? Um, it sets out all the kind of background of human rights um, law and things like that in a way that's really very easy to read. So I appreciated that. Um, the, I, I would agree with Dennis that the, the second section on the, the kind of um, FAQ is pretty good. Very comprehensive set of information there. But it's also just very, very well argued Um eloquent she writes so beautifully and we know because when she told her story at broadcast live that was so beautiful as well wasn't it real kind of bedtime story um particularly fascinating chapter on feminism of birth um and the kind of political dilemma between sort of campaigning to improve women's experience without polarizing people into different camps which is something that you know we're aware of but to read it puts sort of set out so nicely is is very helpful yeah um, and just, you know, if you've ever kind of thought, well, what, what does consent really mean? Or you've been in a situation and you've seen something happen and you thought, well, was that really consent? Yes. And I, th- I think for me, it, it kind of distilled a lot of that sort of lack of clarity. And I feel very well informed from reading it. Yeah. In fact, even as I said, uh, Kathy Warwick was encouraging everyone in the birth world to read it. I realized that even in saying that, there was a little bit of me that was excluding doctors. And of course, the opposite's the truth. Kathy Warwick pointed that out, that the model that Rebecca 
thicker outlines would be deeply helpful to a doctor who's struggling with these issues around consent. Also, just to become aware of its importance, because without wanting to denigrate anybody in any profession in this area, I think that sometimes the the human part of the human rights in childbirth gets lost. I really don't think uh, that this is happening uh, consciously with intent. You know, I don't think any doctor, any midwife, any health professional in the main is thinking, I am now going to contravene this woman's human rights. No, but they are sometimes thinking, I'm right, she's wrong, she's got to shut up and listen. But then maybe that's doing them a little bit of a disservice in the context that they're practising in. You know, whether you're a doctor or a midwife, maybe a a doctor who's existing inside structures that are A, hierarchical, and B, is being constrained by a risk management agenda – that's informed by a certain type of evidence, you know, and is thinking or second guessing each time, can I defend this? See, what the book does is, I think, is it places a choice where it belongs. You know, but with, if just with going back to your description there of, of the uh, medical professional thinking, can I defend this? Who are they putting at the center of that then? Well, who, well, who, whose needs are most important in that question? I think that's a fair point. <laughs> you are so incisive, Karen, as you cut through my straw man. <laughs> leveling, leveling my straw man to the ground. I, I, I think in that moment, I, I'm not sure there is a, a thought through cognitive process where they're going, uh, I'm going to disregard uh, this Oh, no, I agree with that. That's the point I was making. I I think the book positions, um, makes the argument very clearly that a woman's choice uh, is is paramount, sacrosanct, is is ultimate and and needs to exist in the context of information that's given uh, inverted commasly as objectively as possible. But But you can't separate that from the human being who is under pressure from institutional structures. Yes, so we call for compassion for everybody. Exactly. But isn't it awful that a book like this is is lauded as so important, that this even needs saying? I mean, I'm in front of birth workers almost weekly, you know, hundreds and hundreds, and the themes are so consistent. You You know, we talk about it a lot. Am I allowed Will I be allowed to do this? Information that's given in such a way as, you know, the we talk about, and it's horrible, the dead baby card. All of this exists in a context of how we evaluate risk and what risk is, which kind of leads kind of nicely to, to the news item that I saw on the BBC today. Uh, being the 17th. Today being the 17th of October. Sorry, you were just going to say that, weren't you? I was. <laughs> Go. Well, it's 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 a new scheme that's being announced um, in the context of a no blame uh, compensation culture. Yes, I was listening to this on the radio as well. New birth injuries compensation scheme announced. The, the concern is that compensation in the context of birth injuries uh, is taking up to eleven years for a court settlement to be arrived at, and Jeremy Hunt. Uh, says he wants a speedier resolution and a move away from a blame culture. 
Okay, can't see any argument with that. No, and I think it tallies with what we were talking about before. You know, if you're a doctor or a midwife that's practicing inside a culture that's going to blame you uh, for a choice that a woman's making, well, then you are going to be under pressure sometimes hmm. to to railroad through what that culture accepts. So this should increase transparency. One would hope. Uh, some of the things that are proposed are eight million pounds available for training, a two hundred and fifty thousand pound fund to pilot new ideas for improving maternity care. That's not a lot of money, really, is it? It's not a lot of money, and they I, could put that into MSLCs. Yeah, they probably could. But when I when I hear about improving maternity care, I. <laughs> It's very difficult to think out of the thinking patterns of the institution itself. So very often the people that are coming up with ways of improving maternity care are constrained and shackled by the way they've always thought about improving maternity care. And and that itself tends to lead to ideas coming up that have been around before. And also this, um, again, circling back to um, what, what we've got here, the health secretary has set a target of halving stillbirths and neonatal deaths by 2030. But yeah. it's a statistic of well more than seven babies, so less than eight babies for every thousand births in England are yeah. either born dead or die soon afterwards. That's tiny. Yeah, although the, the article does put it in the context of the Western world, doesn't it? Yeah. So it says, uh, I'm looking at it here, uh, at present, for every thousand births in England, more than seven babies are either born dead or die soon afterwards, giving it one of the worst records of any developed country. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at the experience of other countries and comparing. Mm -hmm. but the problem is, is you've heard of the, the concept of homogeny, you know, the idea that when you're doing research, you're looking for comparisons that you can make that have integrity. Does that make sense, Karen? No. Well, <laughs> when you're, when you're, when you're comparing different cultures with different cultures, the, the variables are multiple. Mm. They are completely multiple. And the challenge is not being reductionist about your comparisons, you know, not, not reducing it to uh, the stats as, as horrible as, you know, seven near deaths or seven deaths out of a thousand years. Yeah. You know, if you're looking at Sweden, and and I don't know what their figures are, and that's something I'm going to go on a bit of a search for, it, it, the culture in Sweden is different from here mm. in many, many, many ways. Yeah. So just looking at the numbers isn't necessarily going to inform how you adjust and change what's going on here. Yeah, but they, they're measuring things that can be measured, aren't they? They are. I'm going to put a shout out for anybody who can give us a helpful comparison with what's going on in Sweden to get in touch on Twitter or Facebook so that we can continue this conversation. Definitely. It'd be nice to interview someone who either works in Sweden or has insight into the Swedish system. I, I am cautiously happy about the focus on maternity care because we know that the maternity uh, structures in the UK are under immense pressure and the people that work in it are heroes. So I'm happy about that. Uh, but just a little bit cautious about this focusing on um, so-called blame culture in this way. Uh, yeah. Because the minute you start talking about, we're going to halve this, we're going to halve that, I, I'm not sure it leads to a reduction of blame culture. It just adds different layers that you're being 
measured against. Well, quite. And don't they um, reduce the unemployment figures by measuring it differently? Absolutely. I just find it hard to trust Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt. And I think this actually, um, we can talk about this article in the context of our wider theme today as well, because if you're thinking about this, this is the thing that's being talked about on the radio today. What are pregnant women thinking? People are, are hearing this news about stillbirths and um, 11 years for court settlement and um, long-term brain damage. And yes. what are they thinking? It says here, um, this rapid resolution and redress scheme, which is out for consultation, would investigate the 500 cases of avoidable harm to babies. That sounds like a lot. We can put it in context. And even when yeah. we do that, we're still thinking that's seven terrible incidents. Yeah. But for that one mum... Yeah, you know, there, there's no statistic that feels safe. Let, 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 I, I think when I think about it, I, I, I think this. I, I think I am naive if I ma- imagine for one minute that I'm not influenced by social media, by marketing, by the cultural melee I am swimming in. You know, it's kind of a maxim for me. I say to myself, I am always, uh, almost certainly wrong or partly wrong about everything I currently hold as a good operating uh, principle for working. And it's, it's a helpful little mantra. Yeah. So I, 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 at the moment I'm pursuing this. It's a good way of operating. I have a conviction it's the right way, but I'm almost certainly wrong because I am swimming in, in, in the cultural social media melee too. And but that, that, that reflective capacity that you have is what makes you good at your job. It, thank you. It's, it's the reflection. It's the doubt and the kind of almost chasing your tail sometimes thinking, well, but if that's right, then I'd need to do something differently. But if I do that, then I have to then consider this other thing. It doesn't feel like chasing my, my tail. It, it feels like living in a perpetual question. You see, because the illusion, I, I would say for me, is, is pretty much laid to rest. I'm hesitant to say finally laid to rest. The illusion that I will arrive at truth has been banished from from my expectations research like we say every week we research never arrives at absolute truth only correlations between effects so there's always more to find there's always an etc and um that that for me is energizing and and it keeps me humble you know i was in a meeting last week and i i was told while i was there that my book was one of five in a paper that was being criticized using um, a certain narrative. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my life, having my book um, put together with these other books and then being told that it reinforced a feminist, uh, sorry, a patriarchal narrative. That was very painful. Gosh. I didn't know. That's not where you're coming from at all, is it? No. But I was being homogenized or lumped together with all these books. You see, I see my book as a subversive to that narrative. It was it was painful. But like my, <laughs> can we get them on? Uh, well, you could. Uh, <laughs> we are. I wouldn't do he, that to you, Mark. Well, he, no, it was. I, I wouldn't have gone had I have known. But I am blimmin' glad I did go because it led to lots of reflective thinking mm. uh, about you know about how. The book might appear to some to be in re- re- 
reinforcing a narrative. But, but in one sense, reinforcing the narrative is another way of talking about getting rapport for those that are swimming in that narrative. You know, when, when they hear it, it sounds familiar to them because it links to their experience. But the book takes them beyond it, gives them an opportunity to go beyond that narrative. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was it was a real challenge. And I forgot how I got onto it. I don't know. <laughs> You've put something on there. Parenting in a fake fake book world. I like what they did there. Yeah. In a fake book world. How social media is affecting your parenting. We talk about fake book world, but Facebook reflects current prevailing culture as much as anything else. Well, but it also reflects your little um you know your your own bubble it's an echo chamber because you only follow people who and i'm not saying you as in you mark harris I mean, generally people will tend to follow people they agree with this is particularly <laughs> the case on twitter so you're just um, looking in a mirror is that what you say yeah yeah absolutely so that's why you know po- post brexit we're all looking at it going but everybody said they were going to vote remain everybody didn't you just yeah. only follow the 48 <laughs> percent well, that's kind of true for me. I mean, some people, that ex- if they express views that I consider racist or, or totally inappropriate, I, I, I do tend to unfriend them. Mm. Well, see what I mean? Yeah, you you, you select out the people you don't want to hear their opinions. Yeah, you're still on my friend list. Well, anyway. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> what I found interesting was, it was and this is totally... Um, a huge step away from what we were just talking about is the oversharing parents putting stuff on Facebook about their children oh yeah I always always sometimes you know I bristle and I think oh god this is a safeguarding issue well yeah my dad says that dad dad works in social services and he's um, very strongly encouraged or discouraged I suppose um, my brother and I from putting anything about our children on Facebook and we don't no pictures I mean I'll make the odd comment about parenting him but I won't tend to say today he has it at this place doing this thing yeah and and what's the article actually saying it says that children are mortified by the things their parents put on Facebook. So this it doesn't touch on the safeguarding quite so much. No. It's more about what are these children going to think when they're older? And is it okay for us to brag about how great our kids are all over the internet? And what, what does that set up for them in the future? It, it probably says more about our own insecurities as parents. It does. But if you think now that people are wary of what we put you know should be wary of what we put on social media ourselves because i don't know future employers future in-laws um yeah. friends generally people you meet people are googling you people yeah, are looking you up to see what the what what the the social media history says about you and it's not very fair that we're building this huge body of knowledge about our children that they have no control over. Well, it adds a completely new dimension to your mum getting out your naked baby photos when you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an issue for uh, all professionals, really. I, I know the RCN, RCM and the RCN and the NMC have been quite directive about how midwives and student midwives use social media. Yeah. You know, when it comes to confidentiality, when it comes to... Uh, inverted commas, uh, professionalism, although that's a social construct. But I think it's right just focusing back on what what um, people are told about what they should put on social media in terms of midwives and other health professionals. And certainly within kind of my work, it's it's a big thing because there have been cases where families have found out about babies being born from the 
doula's Facebook posts. And that's not really on, is it? That's a, that's a, just a plain and simple confidentiality issue. Yeah. Simple as that, isn't it? I don't want to roll back the tide. You know, all this stuff about, you know, let's roll back. You can't. You can't. Well, you can't. Yeah, you no, can't. That, that's, that's another straw man there, isn't it? You just can't roll it back. And to be honest, I get humongous benefit from my connection to Facebook, Twitter. I, I have knowledge at my fingertips. In fact, you know, the knowledge overload may well lead to us not accessing uh, the knowledge because there's so much of it mm. and very little editing of it, very little, which is good. Um, but because there's such an overwhelming uh, availability of information, uh, you know, we, we might not be avail- availing ourselves of it as much yeah. as we think. There's also another thing um, that's worth thinking about here, which is that there isn't one correct way to use social media. Um, you know, we, we, we have our views. We've, we've just stated what our views are in this respect, but other people will completely disagree with that. Yeah. I, I, and they're free to, aren't they? Yeah. So we we can't get away from this completely just massive, as you say, overload of different views and different feelings, different pictures and just different sources of information. Yeah. No, we can't. And and for me, I have some operating principles. As a rule, I'm never going to reply harshly to anyone. Uh, I'm never going to attack anyone personally. There's a lot of innocence in the sense that, you know, some of the vitriol you hear, you can you can hear the personal hurt of the person dishing it out in the midst of them doing so. What that makes me think of is some of the posts you'll see kind of post childbirth or during early parenthood, kind of trying to seeking someone to blame for an experience that didn't meet expectations. Yeah. And you'll often read, and you know, obviously, it's nearly always the NCT getting the blame. But whoever it is that that somehow let them down, they will say it's wrong that you should have given yeah. me this expectation, and yeah. that expectation hasn't just come from one place. Of course, it isn't. I, I mean, the critical constructionist told us years ago that knowledge doesn't get transferred; it gets built inside your own ability to connect what you're hearing with what's already going on in your life. Mm. most angry, violent outbursts have fear underneath. You know, when we speak about media manipulation, media sending messages that, that it that it wants us to take on board, often at a deeply unconscious level, reading a meta-analysis study is bringing together lots of other studies in a, in a format and in a way that can be digestible and taken on board, right? And when that article points to the fact that in an American context, about a third of those meta-analyses that is making, you know, another shorthand for meta-analysis is making sense of that body of research in such a way that you can read it and apply it. Uh, You know, when you think that doctors use meta-analysis as a way of keeping up to date with information, and a third of those meta-analysis are funded and supported in clandestine ways by pharmaceutical companies, is so they're not meta-analysis they're, they're adverts well this comes back to any any critical thinking doesn't it where you you if you're reading science or you're reading a, a meta-analysis of some research that you do need to consider as part of what your your assessment of it has got to be where's the money come from to do this so we yeah. get this constantly don't we in the world of baby feeding yeah we do but and that article points out that there there are clandestine ways that pharma pharmaceutical companies use in order to hide the fact that they're the source of the article mm. or the source of the study and that 
you know, that that's not done by accident. That's Machiavellian and clandestine. Yeah. You know, and even in a world of moral absolutes, that, that violates some of the ones that I pretend I haven't got. So what are we, how are we relating this to our theme? Well, well, well it fits with the, the manipulation of information in order to achieve a particular purpose. But are we saying that generally um, information is manipulated or are we saying that information is put out there for entertainment and that's where people are getting their... Well, I, I, I think sometimes stuff's put out there under the guise of entertainment. Often a message is, is conveyed, certainly to the unconscious mind, if it comes in the context of story, entertainment and fun. But the, the presuppositions in the story, entertainment and fun uh, are designed to create a certain set of thinking patterns and ways of behaving, therefore. You know, someone suggested to me at a breastfeeding conference the other day that all of the furore on Facebook about women who have had poor experiences and we and we feel for them and it's wrong when they breastfeed in public you know she says that in her classes antenatal teacher uh, more than she's ever experienced before women are saying they're thinking about not breastfeeding because they're worried about breastfeeding in public but i have a sneaking suspicion that public breastfeeding isn't the issue that we're led to believe it is because of how the isolated incidents go across the social media world and wouldn't it be just like the formula companies to use that and encourage that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, th these things are only in the news because they're not everyday occurrences. Exactly. I don't think we can be under any illusion that formula companies are very sophisticated in manipulating the narrative. Yeah. So what are you saying? that the, Are you saying that the story itself is planted or are you saying it's blown up by it? No, or? no, no, no. Because that, that would diminish the experience of women that have that experience. And they do. Right. But once it's out there, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the formula companies capitalize upon it and use it. Of course they do. Yeah. And um, so that creates a tension for those of us in in the birth world and, and breastfeeding supporting folk, how do we handle those stories when they break? You know, how do we, maybe we counter those stories with people reporting an overabundance of positive experience. I don't know. I don't so know. We've, we've got, um, I just linked this just now, the story from last week about the, is she an actress, a reality TV star? I don't know what she is. Sam Fayers breastfeeding live on this morning. Ah, okay. I didn't see that. And, and of course, the um, the parliamentarian breastfeeding while giving a speech. Yes, you put that on, didn't you? Yeah. And I think I put it on because I had in my mind um, uh, issues around uh, formula companies being so expert and so good. Uh, you know, if, if I didn't find it so angering, I would be in admiration of their ability to shape the narrative. Yes. Well, that's like the, the Mummy Wars advert, isn't it? The Similac ad, oh. where you see everybody going, no, no, but they're, they're from another tribe, but that's okay. And the only people who make any bitchy remarks at all are the breastfeeding mothers. Oh, it's so clever. It's so clever. It's horrible. It's chilling. But it's so clever. It's not a fair playing field because of the money involved. And it's not a fair playing field because often those of us in the birth world and the breastfeeding world look down upon... Um, with disgust upon the, the, the strategy 
procedures and the operating, the ways of operating of formula companies. And we say that's manipulative. We could never do that. That's morally wrong. You know, we create this moral absolute frame. But for me, you know, the distinction between manipulation and influence is intent. So I, I think I think we should get cleverer. Go on. Well, cleverer when it comes to to seeking to influence the narrative ourselves. But who's going to do that and how and with what resources? No idea. Mm. Although, we, although we do know uh, about David and Goliath, right? Right. Uh, you know, I know it's maybe a mythical story, but and, and we do know if we were to look at the history of war, there are countless historical accounts of uh, groups of people that shouldn't have won but did because they uh, used guerrilla te- tactics and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it doesn't the fact that we haven't got the money doesn't necessarily mean we can't counteract the narrative in ways that's as smart as their ways. I hope you're right, but I don't know. You know, it's again coming back to our echo chamber. I see people doing this all the time. Yeah. But it's probably all the people. <laughs> there aren't any more. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 there's, there's always room for hope, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, human race isn't excluded from evolutionary forces. You know, so there is going to be a, a cognitive evolution. You know, you, the forebrain. Yes, but evolution talk- takes a very, very long time. Not in epigenetic sense, it doesn't, which is, you know, epigenetic changes of the genome we think can happen over a generation. Mm-hmm. You know, hence Maureen's concern about formula feeding. So are you positing an epigenetic theory of um, media influence? Well, who knows? <laughs> There's got to be a PhD in that. Well, you you joke, but you know the way images are kind of used in film on Facebook is shaping our cognitive processing. It's true. It is shaping the way that we create images on the inside, the way we experience the world. Because no human being experiences the world directly. The words I use to describe experience are not the experience itself. They're descriptions of the experience. Right. Right. So the way that we construct our internal world is being shaped by the media. So uh, maybe there will be an epigenetic effect. Maybe. Who knows? So we've been talking about um, quite a range of interesting different articles. We've got one on parents.com called Parenting in Fake Book World, How Social Media is Affecting Your Parenting. We've had the wakingtimes.com, Dr. Warns, 80% of medical studies are advertisements for Big Pharma. Um, we've got something, well, I've linked the BBC article, but it's um, all over the news on the 17th of October. New birth injuries compensation scheme announced. Um, and a B, oh, sorry, a BMC, Biomed Central article from pre- their pregnancy and childbirth section called Is It Realistic? The Portrayal of Pregnancy and Childbirth in the Media. All of those are linked on our Facebook page if you want to look at them any further. Excellent. And you've got, uh, you've got the interview coming up with Regina Das. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. You went to the NCT conference recently. How how was that? It was brilliant. I really loved it this year. It's the best one I've been to. Really? Yes. It was just the the morale is high at the moment, so that was nice. It was. I mean, in my my echo chamber, the morale was high. What do you put the morale being high down to? I don't know. We've got a, a relatively new chief exec, and he's very charismatic. Um, I managed to have a little bit of chat with him quite late at night on the Friday. Um, 
in the bar and you know he was nice to listen to but he also did a really good speech on the Saturday morning it's always lovely to be with colleagues because we work in such an isolated industry we're not like we don't go into the hospital every day and talk to other people who do the same job as us we use social media a lot but we are scattered across the country and we don't meet in person and it's it's it can be so just life-affirming to do that So I'm hoping later to catch up with Dr. Ranjana Das again for a second time to re-record our interview. And if we get that, you'll be listening to it now. So with great apologies, I'm not able to bring you the interview with Ranjana Das because technical issues just plagued me. But as a fantastic knight in shining armour thing going on here, I have got Emma Cully Morgan, who's going to talk to us instead. Hi, Emma. Hi. (laughs) Would you like Um, to explain who you are? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, up until recently, I've worked in uh, education for about 12 years mainly in the subject of film studies and media studies, teaching 16 to 19-year-olds, which everyone always says, oh, my God, how do you cope? <laughs> but actually, I, I taught in Cambridge, so they weren't too bad. <laughs> and so I, I, I had a passion, or still have a passion, about film. Um, but when I became a mother, or shortly be- before I became a mother, I took a hypnobirthing class. So um fell in love with that, and that's now my other passion, and I teach hypnobirthing now in the local area of North Essex um, so I kind of sometimes have opportunities where I'm lucky enough to combine my two passions and I you know I've written a couple of articles about representation of birth in film um, which really fascinates me and angers me at the same time. <laughs> yeah I was just been reading one that Mark's posted on his website about the dearth of intervention in Hollywood cinema. Right yes that's the more recent one. Um, saying recent it hasn't been it's been quite a while since I've put pen to paper (laughs) but yeah the the more recent one that I did was about intervention in Hollywood and how in comparison to the high levels of intervention in uh, western um, medicine and western birthing um, we don't really see a lot of it in in the film, interestingly. So you see, yes, you see a lot of like hospital environments in cinema, but induction of labour, epidurals, uh, not so much. So it's just exploring why that might possibly be the case and the impact of that. Right. And um, yeah, what what it said in your article, I think, was that you don't see the range of interventions. You basically see cesarean and it's represented as a rescue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, as a saviour. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, and also the, the epidural um, is interesting, like, you know, loads of women. So I think it's about sort of well over a third of women um, in the United States have an epidural for pain relief. Um, and yet it's very rare. In fact, I haven't seen one example in Hollywood cinema in particular where somebody's had an epidural. Um, and the reason I think that is, is because when they have an epidural, they don't have pain, of course. And pain is dramatic mm. and entertaining. Um, so, you know, if you give a woman an epidural in, in cinema, your drama's gone. So, so that's an issue with with sort of intervention and the, and generally how birth is represented in, in film, because it's always got to entertain, it's always got to be dramatic. 
Um, do, you, do you think there's also a patriarchal thing going on where um, the woman has to be rescued by science and science oh, being a kind of male absolutely. thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm a feminist as well. And um, yeah, absolutely. It all comes back to patriarchal society and and the man and the male kind of system as saviour. Um, and, and so, you know, if you think about the, those moments in lots of Hollywood cinema, uh, Hollywood films where the woman start like starts going into labor it's normally dramatic like a massive gush of waters like in the supermarket yeah. and they they all say right get to the hospital and it's a major rush they've got to get in the car quick 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 because you know it's dangerous to be away from the hospital you cannot do it on your own <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah it absolutely comes ambulances to you know we need medicine to save us obviously um and you know you can't <laughs> if, if hollywood cinema is anything to believe we'd think that you know we wouldn't be able to give birth at all without a doctor present and then post um panic even without the cesarean the next scene is the woman in lithotomy and uh, a nice man coming in offering to deliver her baby Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so really, you know, my in my article, I was kind of ex- trying to explore um, what impact that might have. So, women, you know, see as the norm through these films, which which are often the only experience they have of birthing before they've become a parent themselves. Mm. Um, they see lithotomy and screaming and drama and risk and danger as the norm. So it sets their expectation up to to expect their own birth to be like that, and and to to rely more heavily on um, medicine and and technology because of it. Yeah, and then you went on to say that because you don't tend to see things like induction vontus, then there isn't that same sort of expectation around that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of nurtures what we see tends to nurture our fears more than what we don't. Um, so what's present on the screen is the pain, you know. So we f- we then fear the pain. And what's going to fix that? Well, medicine is going to fix that and technology is going to fix that. Um, but if we don't see the realities of induction, the realities of cesarean section, et cetera, et cetera, um, then it's hard to fear that, you know, if we're, we're constantly fed messages of medicine and technology, you know, being the saviour and alleviating you from pain, alleviate, alleviating the risk and the danger, then, you know, we're more inclined to, to give up our bodies, surrender our bodies to, to doctors and the system. So it's a, it's a, I want to use the word propaganda (laughs) a heavy influence towards trusting the medical system yeah absolutely I mean but the beauty of film is that everybody reads it differently I mean you know um, you know everybody interprets every single image every single sound in a completely different way to each other Uh, might be similar but because of our own individual life experiences our own individual attitudes etc we always respond slightly differently, so and sometimes very differently as well. So there might be a normal kind of um, hegemonic kind of uh, reading, but there's always alternatives. So, so you know, somebody seeing lots of intervention 
uh, lots of hospital environments in cinema might cause them to completely reject the hospital environment for themselves. So they might connect the pain and the drama with the hospital environment and then therefore choose something different for themselves. So there's always different ways of reading it, which is a positive thing. Um, but, you know, certainly Hollywood cinema tends to uh, try and manipulate the audience, the mass audience, into the same reading, ultimately. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So I'm just coming up to nine minutes. Is there anything else that you want to say? Oh, I could go on for ages, I'm Karen. sure. And I'd, I'd love to be able to offer you more time. I'm so <laughs> pressed and I'm just really worried that it won't record. And <laughs> oh, that I might be ringing you back in a minute saying, do you want to say all that again? <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> Thank you. So um, have you got your own website at all? Do you have anywhere that people can read your, your essays? Um, I don't. I, Mark Harris um, has been, well, I've been a guest blogger on his blog yeah. a couple of times. So so if I write anything, it'll be on there first and foremost. Oh, that's cool. the, well, we've, we've already linked this on our oh, um, okay, Facebook great. page. Um, but I, yeah, I am in the process, you know, creating, starting my new blog is one of the things on my to-do list. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thanks, Emma. I'm going to have to go now. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank Karen. you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. What do you think about that? Please get in touch, will you? People have been getting in touch, Karen. We have. We've got quite a few. We can we can read a few of these out. So I've pulled out one from Susie Colbeck, one of my NCT colleagues. She says she's just listened whilst on her daily yomp with her dog. And what she's written is, it's always interesting, but especially relevant today as I'm planning the study days for an NCT level six module called the cultural oh. shaping of birth and beyond. That's right up our street, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps you'll get us to come along. Um, <laughs> and she's also invited us to Newcastle or Edinburgh, which sounds super. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Michelle Brooks says, thank you so much for focusing on cesarean birth and sharing the insights of Claire Gogging. So often cesarean birth is seen as a detriment to society and something we should avoid rather than looking at it as something that does happen and does matter in the lives of a woman and how her birth experience and voice still matters even once that seemingly natural birth as birth is so much more than outcome. Right? Cool. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. My friend Claire says she said, thinks that we need a Sprogcast uncut, not for the faint-hearted. But the... <laughs> considering the conversation we've just had and then planned to edit out completely, we don't agree with you, Claire. Well, I do, Claire, but there you go. <laughs> I'm a junior partner. Uh, Arlene Sherard, uh, I'm on an access to midwifery course and just started to listen. I've got a way to go to catch up. Love it so far. Thank you. Thank you, Arlene. I appreciate that. And I used to teach on an access to midwifery course, and I know the challenge that you've got in front of you. Good luck with that. We also had comments from Sarah Caldwell, Kay Hodgkin, Hannah Gadd, Amanda Antcliffe, Liz May, and countless more on Twitter as well. And we did promise that we would give away a copy. What, what book are we giving away? Is it Human Rights in Childbirth? Yeah, we are. Uh, signed right. by Rebecca Schiller. Uh, our sponsors, Pinter and Martin, have, have agreed to send that out for us. So we're gr very grateful to them too. So we're going to do a draw and put all these names in the hat and magically pull out. I, I, hold on. Arlene. Arlene Sherrard. You've won. We're going to need your uh, snail mail address, Arlene. So do get in touch. So that's that. I think we're going to mention our sponsor again right now. And we've got a different voice to tell us about it. 
Hello, this is Dr. Amy Brown, more commonly known as Dr. Booby on social media. And if you have been anywhere near me on social media lately, you might have heard that I've written a new book. I think I've mentioned it possibly once or twice on Facebook and Twitter. It's called Breastfeeding Uncovered, Who Really Decides How We Feed Our Babies. So why do we actually need another new book on breastfeeding? Well, the recent figures from the Lancet report on breastfeeding showed that the UK has the lowest levels of breastfeeding in the entire world. Yes, the entire world. Out of all the countries, we have the lowest. At 12 months, 0.5% of mums are still breastfeeding. That's one in 200. And that might seem low, but when you compare it to countries even like the USA, where they go straight back to work after having their babies, 27% of mums are breastfeeding there. So something is going on in the UK that is causing our breastfeeding rates to be so low. We know in other countries as well, such as Sweden, that they've got far higher rates than us. About three quarters are breastfeeding at six months compared to our third. Swedish breasts don't work any differently to British breasts. So something cultural, something societal, something that we can change must be going on. And this is what Breastfeeding Uncovered is all about. Just like the current UNICEF baby-friendly call to action, it highlights the need to look away from the individual mother and examine the society that she lives in if we, and that's us, all of us, want to fix our breastfeeding rates. Throughout the book, I uncover the evidence behind each of these barriers that society places in breastfeeding's way. Think about it. Our society in the UK is not breastfeeding friendly. We don't have enough support in hospitals. Mothers are being let down right from the start. Even when they're out of the hospitals, we don't care for our new mothers. We don't mother them. We don't look after them like they do in other countries. We're hung up as breasts, hung up on breasts as sexual objects. How many times do you hear stories of mothers being thrown out of coffee shops because they've been breastfeeding? Probably from somebody who's reading The Sun and staring at a adorned pair of breasts in there but can't cope with a pair of breasts in front of him doing their proper thing. We listen to experts who don't have a clue about normal feeding. No names named here, but how many tell you to put your baby into routine who said they should be sleeping through the night? This damages breastfeeding. It damages the confidence that new mums have. We've got an industry that seeks to undermine breastfeeding through promoting formula, trying to push it to healthcare professionals, setting up breastfeeding helplines that you can ring if you've got a problem. Oh, I can't breastfeed. I know, I'll ring a formula company and ask for their advice. For those who don't go for formula, they sell daft products. Seemingly every week now they've got some ridiculous product out that tells you how to measure your milk supply. What's it going to cause? Anxiety. We need to do something about this. This is completely in our control. It's not just a physiological issue that is stopping women from breastfeeding. It's our culture. It's our society. We all need to call on the government to invest properly in breastfeeding and protect and support new mothers to feed their babies. So if you want to make a change, where do you start? Well, buy a copy of the book, obviously. Read it. Get angry. Get passionate. Want to make a change. Together, I really believe we can make a difference here. You can buy your copy direct from the publishers, Pinter and Martin, and if you use the code SPROGCAST at the checkout, you'll get 10% off the revolution. What are you waiting for? Get online, go and buy it. Excellent. What are you reading at the moment, Mark? Me? I am reading two 
well, three books, actually, well, four, but I've just finished, I'm just at the end of a novel called The Majors. Oh, John Fowles. Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, years ago. Well, The Majors is just an amazing book. Now, I, I, I'm reading it at the moment. I don't know whether I can uh, endorse it because it's so wild and weird. For me, the book is exploring all the things we've spoken about in this broadcast, about how narrative is shaped and then taken on board inside an individual human's experience as the truth about their life unfolding. And it's a fabulous book. Uh, alongside that, I'm rereading Lewis Woolpert's book, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? The book he wanted to be titled, Why Can't a Man Be More Like a Woman? And uh, both books are informing my work in different ways. Karen, what about you? Um, like you, I'm reading several books. Um, so I've got my novel that's on the go, but I'm also reading um, Why Doulas Matter. So Maddie McMahon's book. Yeah. It's interesting. There's lots and lots of different points in it, but I, I still haven't kind of it's it doesn't have quite the focus of some of the other why it matters books right um so i'm not sure if it's quite what i expected but it is certainly interesting um to read i got a sense of of, of maddie's underlying philosophy for doulering from it yes and her voice really clearly comes through it doesn't it it was it was a positive emotional experience in the reading um and i know we've been encouraged to give shout outs to blogs and maddie's blog is always worth a read Mm, definitely. So what were you you're reading a novel? Yeah. It's not particularly relevant to <laughs> anything. And I'm reading Religion for Atheists by Alan de Botton, which is really quite dull. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. That's a shame. I'm just ploughing through it, waiting to get to the end and then I'll read something else. But well, my, why don't you just stop reading it? I can't do that. It's it's gotta be really bad for me to stop reading it. I have two things that I operate on with books for periods of time. So so sometimes if I don't get into the book, I just put it down and don't finish it. At other periods of my life, I, I apply uh, the principle that if I'm not getting into this book, it's because the author it, it thinks in a totally different way to me and therefore there's value in finishing it. Hmm. I never just plod, plod through for its own sake just because I have to finish the book. Oh, I do. <laughs> that dates back to before you were seven, probably. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I am a bit more fussy nowadays. Um, you know, I haven't got enough time to read everything, so I'm not going to spend time reading something I don't feel has any value. But I am finding this particular book fairly dull. Oh, all right. Okay, I wonder, Karen. Yes. I had a thought the other day. We Maybe we should pose a question at the end of our uh, Sprogcast. Okay, have you got for... a question in mind? Um. Okay. Thanks. For Go that. for it. Uh, well, just <laughs> a great idea. Okay. So, oh god, I'm trying to think of one related to the influence of media upon women's perceptions of birth. Have okay. You... Well, should we do this next time then? All right. And over to you, Karen. We've done endorsements. Okay. So, um, if if you do have any suggestions or comments, get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes. Why not leave us a review? Our next episode, I think we're hoping to do something on air quality and smoking in pregnancy. And we'll have a few people to talk to for that. Oh, yeah, so if you've got cool. any thoughts on that or things you want to suggest or contribute, please do add those to the usual sources and we'll um, we'll bring it all in. It's all great if people can contribute stuff. I'm looking forward to, to that episode very much. I know it's something that's of interest to you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Very much so. Uh, so that's us for today, I think. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks for listening. It's 
goodbye from Mark. And from Karen. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.